I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hi, everyone. It is Raghu. I'm back with Mind Rolling, and I'm with the very old, and when we say old, we are old, Ramdev Dale Borglum. Hi, Ramdev. Howdy, Raghu. So um, we've, uh, we were just together a little bit ago and uh, spent some time talking about, uh, you know, usually as we do, we get together and the odd thing will come up. Oh, you remember when we did this, that, or the other when we were in India back then? And uh, and on top of that, Ramdev, I found some diary as I, because, you know, in this big move that I've done from the east to the west coast, finding all kinds of things, you know, that I haven't seen in ages. And, uh, and there was a you in a description of being at Muktananda's ashram in Ganesh Puri in 1971. And in it, you said, yeah, so I met a couple of people, Raghu being one of them, while I was waving the thing over the Murti. Yeah, it was kind of funny. I mean, they, while I was there, Muktananda had a Murti of Nityananda made, and they installed it at the ashram. And then they chose three people out of all the yogis to be the pujaris for the new Nityananda Murti. And one was me, and one was Vishu McGee, and one was some other guy. So two out of the three people were not even part of the other devotees. They were Nityananda people, and that was the time. That was a really interesting story. I don't know if you want me to get into a story. Yeah, we're just here hanging out from there. So anyway, I ended up going to India, not knowing quite what I was going to do, and I had 
been going to Stanford before I went to India, Ramdas, whenever he would come to Northern California, would stay across the street from my house at Joel Waldman's house. Joel is a guy that Ramdas knew from Millbrook. So he would come and give talks in Northern California. He'd stay across the street. He and I got to be drinking buddies when I was a, a, a graduate student. I thought I was the luckiest yogi in America. <laughs> and I got my PhD and I'm off to India. And at that point, it didn't seem like Maharaji was available. In fact, Ramdas had said that I should go and be with Haridas Baba. And before I was going to leave, Haridas sent me a telegram. You remember those things called telegrams? Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> saying, I'm coming to America if you want to study with me. Do not come to India. Stay where you are. I'm coming to Davis, California. So I was in a big quandary. Should I go to India where I didn't really know anybody? Or should I stay there and be with the guy that Ramdas said was my connection? <laughs> and I, it was like, I really didn't know. And I, I just got as deep as I could. And I said, you know, I've got to go to India. I've got to leap into the void here. And I ended up going to Ganeshpuri because I had known Muktananda a bit. And eventually, as I say, they installed this murti. And it was a really big deal. The Shankaracharya came. And Ramdas was there, and Muktananda's main devotee, this guy, Rudy, Swami Rudrananda, was there. And the deal was, were you there for this? I don't know if you were. I was. We talked about that when you were here, actually. Oh, okay. I have some images from that time, and you're one of them. <laughs> okay, so anyway, Rudy was, you know, he was the number one devotee, and he said, I'm going to take a nap before this installations would you move on the people wake me up in time for the big <laughs> moment right so he takes a nap they don't wake him up Muktananda puts Ramdas up next to him on the stage Ramdas Muktananda Shankaracharya Rudy sleeps through the whole thing <laughs> he wakes up he is so mad it's like the steam is coming out of his ears right and he ends up uh he leaves that was the end of his relationship with Muktananda right because they didn't wake him up. I love that. That's so great. Shiva uh, has his ways, doesn't he? Yes, yeah. Which brings me to another point that I wanted to mention or chat with you about. Uh, I've been doing a lot of uh, podcasts in and around the way in which we are uh, glued to our stories. And that which results from it can be um, cause some real unhappiness. And um, so, yeah, I, I really want your take. I mean, it's, we have a lot of, uh, of a spiritual aphorisms to handle this thing in terms of what we can say to somebody and help in terms of them getting loose from that belief system, basically. So w give me your take on how, what that is and how we get a little loose from it. Well, there's so many ways to talk about That's that. That's like Rudy's, Rudy was in a story there. Rudy, you know, he was having people put his shoes on left and right, right? right. He was in a real guru kind of story, as far as I could see back at that day, in that day. And then his story is, I fell asleep. They didn't wake me up. I'm gone. And then, right? Right. Well, in... in Vajrayana Buddhism, they have a slogan, drive all, drive all blames into oneself. 
which sounds pretty harsh and it's not a very good translation. I've never figured out a better one. Mm. But the notion is as long as you're blaming the outside for what's going on, the outside can even be your own body. You're blaming they didn't wake me up or you're blaming the, the political uh, situation in our country or you're blaming the traffic or the weather. As long as you're blaming something outside, healing cannot happen. So you withdraw the blame, you take responsibility so you can respond. And uh, I teach this healing paradigm, which is roughly based on the three yanas of Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana. So Hinayana is learning to trust. Uh, you, you take refuge, you trust that all you've got to do is be present, that awareness will heal, will point toward healing. And that sounds simple, but it means letting go of the story mm. so that you're feeling something and you're saying, oh, these people didn't do this and they didn't do that. And as long as you're in the story, you're really not being present with your living situation. And righteousness is involved. Yeah, in Yeah, there's righteousness, judgment, criticism. Uh, I've heard tell that Ramdas has a new movie called Becoming Nobody. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that title is really about the fact that in a very fundamental level, there isn't a solid separate being there, that that is a delusion. It's a real delusion. I remember when somebody asked Maharaji, is life real? Is this world real? He says, well, it's completely real. It's completely false. And it's part both. <laughs> right? Really? Yeah, he said that. Wow. So, so I mean, to me, it's like the heart sutra. Form is emptiness, emptiness mm. is form. Mm. And everybody's pretty much caught in form is form. We, we, we don't see that spacious, empty quality. We're always caught up in what's going on here. How can I fix it? And uh, it's easy to talk about this stuff in a more Buddhist sense. But from a more devotional sense, can we have the faith when something happens to let go of the story and realize that this is the mother in one of her forms. One of my favorite pictures is the back of Marash, Marashi's head looking at Durga. Mm -hmm. and, and she's kind of out of focus there. And the, the back of his head is really in focus. And, you know, that's kind of where we are. We're seeing the mother, but she's kind of out of focus. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're thinking she's real. So, yeah. Healing, can you be present? Can you be with what's going on? Can you be embodied? Let go of the story, step one. Step two, have compassion. Can you not only be with what it feels like to just sleep through the main thing of your life, but to have compassion for how upset you're getting? Yeah. And then three, uh, the, the, the tantric perspective. Vajrayana. Even this is sacred. Even this is the mother. Even this this crazy thing is the mother. And in the West, we often think of the mother or the deity as this really loving being you'd like to have cocktails with or something, right? But in Hinduism and Buddhism, there are these like really wrathful, difficult beings. And actually in Hinduism, they say that the two most, the two de deities that uh, will give you darshan most quickly, what do you think they are? You want to take a guess? I, I, I only can guess at the mother. Hanuman and Durga. 
Yeah. Because Hanuman's a cuddly monkey, but he's really Shiva. Mm. And Durga's this beautiful woman, but she's really the same as Kali. So you come sidling up, oh, you're this cute monkey, oh, you're this beautiful woman. And you get up nice and close. Whereas with Kali, you say, Shiva, you say, well, I don't want to get too close to you. You come up mm. and all of your impurities get uh, devoured. Mm. Okay. Those are, uh, so that's Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana, uh, interpreted into some plain spoken. Uh, let's go. The three of things are again. Invocation, you're invoking that all you need to do is be present. From the Dzogchen perspective, trust. The, the essential quality of Hinayana is taking refuge. You're trusting that all you need to do is be present. And then, as you trust that you can be present, you begin to see how suffering's arising. You're not trying to run away from it all the time. And as you form this better relationship with painful emotion with suffering, compassion, the second stage, Mahayana begins to arise. And the nature of the heart is boundlessness. It's, it's sky-like. The heart is as big as the sky. So as the sky becomes bigger and bigger, uh, the I thought, even though it remains, is only one little thing in the vastness of the sky. It's not predominant anymore. And because the sky is so big and the eye is so small, then empowerment begins to rise naturally. That uh, God is smart enough not to give us this power until we've gone through the initiations of invocation and compassion. And we see in our society what happens to people who get power, like athletes and political figures and, and entertainment figures who have not cultivated awareness and compassion is like very very tricky and seductive yeah mm. so great. fortunately for you and us we have not gotten a lot of power because we're still working on the compassion yes <laughs> thanks to god <laughs> oh boy um okay so no i love this ramda because it really is as i said before a very practical um brew that easy for people to recognize and uh, move into. Um, and by the way, because we just mentioned, and we're going to mention it more, Becoming Nobody, the Ramdas film that's uh, out at the beginning of September across the country. Uh, go to becomingnobody.com, by the way, if anybody wants to know where they can see it in their city. And since we are talking about Becoming Nobody, um, I had a thought because I've been talking about this in panels, as you know. And uh, so I say, there's a couple of perspectives. And one of the perspective of what that is, becoming nobody, is when I met Neem Karoli Bama, Maharaji, when we met him. Uh, there was a definitive, oh my God, I have this, there's nobody to go back and forth with here. Uh, there is no relational thing the way that I've known it all my life. And it was a shock to realize there was just a pool there to be in and that that whatever that was did the right thing. I knew it was doing the right thing for me in whichever way I needed it. But basically, the, that and Ramdas says it uh, in the film at, at one point, he wasn't really anybody. And so, and then so of course, that's a, it is a rarity, even though uh, there are 
certainly have been beings like him, maybe not that many. Uh, we were fortunate, uh, and, and for me also, uh, meeting another nobody was uh, the 16th Karmapa is the one that co comes to mind uh, right away. So then there's the other level that we can aspire to, which is, uh, you know, we use Ram Dass because it's this movie. Uh, here is somebody who, and I used Ram Dev, my first meeting with, with Ram Dass, where he put himself aside, not consciously, but there was nobody there. There was, there was just me, total attention to me. And I never really had that kind of a thing happen, maybe when it's a baby or something. Uh, and that was uh, engendered uh, incredible trust. So really it was uh, your thing of, of meeting, you know, the, the Hinayana concept of trust and presence yeah. and awareness. And I never had that before. So there is a way for us to aspire to that as well. And I think this movie really spells it out in terms of uh, being able to just see that the minute we turn away from this, what we've been talking about, this glued to our story and, and somebody else is there and you have nothing but to offer them yourself in that moment, that me, that story disappears completely. So mm -hmm. those are the two kinds of becoming nobody. Tell me what you think in your experience, what you would say about what becoming nobody is. Well, oh boy. So, I mean, to me, uh, form is contained in emptiness and emptiness is Im 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 embedded in form. So there's also, a, even though we're becoming nobody, there's a, a danger in spiritual bypassing. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, it's really easy to go to the, the tantric stage, the Vajrayana stage and just say, I'm God, it's all God, it's all the mother. But if you really haven't gone through the initiations of getting present and opening your heart, then there really is the danger of deluding yourself. And so like in Tibetan Buddhism, before you get the empowerment to uh, become the deity, you do a million mantras, a hundred thousand full prostrations. So that uh, in, the, in, in the tantric stage, in the Vajrayana stage, then we're seeing it all as sacred, it's all the mother, it's beyond pure and impure. But there's even still then, there's me who's the deity. And becoming nobody is going into the non-dual, where in Dzogchen or Mahamudra or Mahaati, which is certainly what the 16th Karmapa talks about and what Mingyu Rinpoche teaches and some other really wonderful teachers, Sokni Rinpoche, Eckhart Tolle, that we still have this ego structure, we're still having a body, we're still doing those things, but there has been this deep realization, not just an understanding, but this full getting that uh, there is not something that's separate. And in fact, modern quantum mechanics is saying exactly what ancient tantric wisdom says, is that there is not an objective reality out there. And that we are not separate beings. So that people are living in this materialistic worldview, and it's certainly the medical model, that uh, we're separate and that we're receiving 
through our senses what's going on in the external objective world. When in fact, it's we are consciousness and consciousness is flowing through the Raghu filter and the Ramdev filter and it's going out and creating reality. It's, it's completely the opposite. So that there's not really a me, it's just consciousness flowing through this daleness or this Ramdevness or this Raghuness or whatever it is. And I remember one time we were at Brindavan and Maharaji had disappeared into his room and we were all baking over there on the on the patio or that deck or whatever that thing was. And somebody poked their head out and says, Maharaji says you can come. So I led the charge. I was the first person <laughs> across the, the court there, there. And I came into the door and like it seemed like I surprised Maharaji, which I don't know what that even means. But he looked up and he looked at me and there was nobody there. And, and it was almost kind of scary because he, he could also be very personal. You know, he'd be concerned. Are you warm enough? Do you need a sweater? Are you hungry? Would you like some food? But in that moment, it was like looking into a bottomless expanse of void. And I remember another time we were in, in also in Brindavan, and he jowed us all for a few days. So one of the devotees, Krishna Priya, decided, well, she loved Maharaji so much that if she disobeyed the order, he would still love her. So she decided to climb over the wall, the temple surrounded by a wall to keep out the, the coits and the monkeys and who knows what. Right? <laughs> Krishna Priya <laughs> <laughs> so she, she's crawling over the wall, and Maharaji sees her, and he tells the Chokidar, the gatekeeper, he gets all mad, get her out of here, get her out of here. And then he turned to somebody and said, they don't understand, they think I'm this body. Really? Whoa. Whoa. So, <laughs> I never heard that. So, you know, I've got a Maharaji picture on my desk right now. I mean, here's my Maharaji picture on my desk, mm. right? But at the same time, it's like less and less do I think about stories from India. It's more this embodied consciousness that's everywhere, that's everybody and nobody. And uh, I remember for the longest time after I was after I left India, I really felt very close relationship with Maharaji. It's like I dream about him, I think about him, I've had visions of him, and then at some point, rather abruptly, it's like he disappeared. And I thought, I'm a really bad devotee. I'm not meditating enough. He told me to meditate. <laughs> okay, what, what you, I got to try harder. And so I like, ramped it up for a year. He never showed up again. And then I had this epiphany that he was saying, it's time for you to jump out of the nest and for you to fly. It's like, I'm still here, but it's not in that personal way anymore. It's you got to embody that. Now, it's, it, it's not you're like you're waiting and being a devotee. It's like, be Ramdev, be out in the world, let go of all that I'm somebody and you're somebody. Mm. The pool of empty, it's, I've told a lot of, on, on a bunch of podcasts, I probably told you, but I once asked Roshi Joan Halifax on a podcast, you've been with Ramdas so long, of course you've, you've known about Neem Karoli Baba and you've seen pictures forever, what what is uh, your relation to this? What, I mean, what do you get what, or not get? She said, "When I look into his eyes, all I see is emptiness." And uh, and I, uh, yep, that 
that is it. Of course, not the nihilistic, everybody out there, emptiness. Uh, but uh, I love uh, Bob Thurman's, uh, his little catchphrase is, emptiness is the womb of compassion. Womb of bliss and compassion. So, uh, yeah. Good description. And, and emptiness could have also been translated as fullness or completeness in a certain yeah, right. way. So, I mean, it's it may be unfortunate. I mean, for the longest time, I was kind of put off by the fact that I was supposed to be empty. It sounded, mm. it, I took it in the nihilistic way in my naivete. Mm, yeah. No, we all did. We all did. Um, I wonder, oh, I just wanted to bring up something. So, I, I've, uh, and you mentioned him before, Mingju Rinpoche, who we just love and uh, have had on Mind Rolling. Uh, it was one of the most wonderful podcasts that I've ever done, just by virtue of being in the presence. He was in Nepal, uh, he was in Kathmandu, and it was as good as this, as, as we are right now in terms of the reception and everything else. So we got his, he's just, I mean, I, I think you've, you've seen him in. Uh, I've done a retreat with him. I did a lot uh -huh. of retreats with his brother, Sokni. Oh, with Sokni, yeah. So who's, who's actually doing an online retreat right now. Yeah, I think I saw that. Um, anyhow, I just saw something that he, he had written for one of the Buddhist uh, magazines. And I thought there was some really cool stuff in here that we could jump off of. Uh, particularly, he was talking about uh, how, in, in the West, particularly, of course, meditation is, a, is an infatuated madness here, going with all the apps and the meditation. I mean, it's really something. So he says, uh, uh, he says, the real power of meditation isn't in the method, it's in shifting our perspective. So this goes really to the heart of what I started. To, we, we started to talk about, about getting glued to your story and so on. And, and we talked about perspective. And... Uh, in Mahayana, he called this, quote-unquote, the view. I love The view is not a technique. It's how we see ourselves and how we relate to our own thoughts and emotions. Without a shift in our view, even the most powerful meditation techniques will just reinforce old patterns and habits. What do you, yeah, what's your response around that? I mean, that's a, it's a fairly radical thing to say. Well, when you go to these Dzogchen retreats, it's really all about the view. Hmm. And the notion is that there's somebody there, there's a, a lama who's had this transmission himself or herself, but it's almost always a himself. And uh, the first session together, he directly transmits the view that is so... Yeah, let's me, talk about the view. We got to talk about what the view is, really. Let me back up. So that initially, before people are practicing, people are really caught up in the content of their experience. Here's a good experience. Here's a bad experience. Here's a pleasant one. And as we begin to practice, we become more identified with the knower than the known, where I'm the observer. I'm not just that stuff. I'm the observer. We're into the Kinayana, Mahayana stages, I'm the compassionate observer. But then eventually, uh, with the view, we're beginning to see that we that it's not so much the experience or the experiencer, but that the nature of each arising itself. So like right now, you're listening to the sound of my voice. 
and I'm talking and I'm talking and you're hearing and you're hearing, what is it that continues if I stop talking? There's a quality of pure awareness that's there whether I'm talking or I'm not talking. And that, that quality of pure awareness or beingness or presence or grace or whatever you want to call it is easier to notice in the gaps between the thoughts, between the breaths, between the sense sensations. But it's there even during the, the talking and the listening and the breathing and the thinking. So that this, this sense of the view is that we begin to be with Rigpa. We begin to be with the awakened quality of experience rather than being identified uh, with thinking mind, with, with ordinary mind. So that right now, you and I could be here. Suppose Maharaj were in the room. He'd be hearing the same stuff going into his ears and going into his, his brain. But he wouldn't be caught up in the content in that way. He would be with the divine nature or the empty nature, depending on what if you're coming from a Buddhist or a devotional mm -hmm. direction. So that the view is continually uh, seeing the nature of things. You look at the nature of things. You don't keep looking, look, look, look. You, but then you let go of the looker. And there's just being with the nature of things. And if you get caught in thinking something solid, you liberate that caughtness and come back to just seeing the nature of things. So that these Dzogchen retreats are incredibly relaxing. Because even the place you're caught is it. <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing you okay. There's nothing you, you can be experiencing that is not it, that. I am that. I am so that Ramana Maharshi does it from another angle. Who am I? And it's not an intellectual question. It's that, what is this I that's experiencing? So that your body is an object. You can pay attention to your body. Your mind is an object. You can pay attention to your mind. What is the I? What is the you? What is, what is the subject? And as we begin to see that it's just pure consciousness, then, our, then the view begins to arise in a very natural way. Mm -hmm. And the view is a perspective from which we see from our quote-unquote I. And uh, can you... Let's talk about... I think I did something earlier today uh, around the film again, and uh, it was, she was kind of saying, what's the, what's the thing? What is the legacy? In this case, a legacy of Ramda, but it's, uh, what is our legacy or what is where all of this comes from and manifests itself? And I, uh, you know, here through all of us that have come back to the West, and I said, I, I really believe there is one unique thing, which is the wisdom of Buddhism meeting the heart of uh, bhakti yoga, the yoga of devotion. And that that combination is, is really something special. And many of us have, and you're, you're one of us talking about taking teachings from Tsokni, and, and But many of us have in one way or another, with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, which I've done a lot as well over the years. So, yeah, what is your take on this blend that seems to be a deep part of who we are and what we share? Well, I, you know, I was raised as a Christian and I really uh, am a 
Bhakta, I, I love Maharaji more than anything. At the same time, my mind was a complete mess. It's getting a little better. I spent 10 years studying mathematics at Cal and Stanford. I don't know if you can imagine what that is. <laughs> I could do it. Yes, I guess yeah. you can imagine because you saw the result of it there. When I got <laughs> yeah, <it. laughs> and so I love Christianity. In fact, much to my chagrin, when Maharaji gave me a mantra, he gave me a Christian mantra which I had been trying to escape from as fast as my legs could carry me. I wanted some more sexy Hindu mantra. He gave me a Christian mantra, right? What was that? Huh? What was that? What was what? The mantra? Yeah. I'm it's not, not going to tell you. No, come on. This isn't... Um, uh... it's, a, it's a secret mantra. You don't tell your mantra over the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um... Anyway, the point is that... that Maharaji teachings were really simple. Love, serve, remember. And Christian mm -hmm. teachings are forgiveness and compassion and love. But there's not a lot of technology there. Whereas in Buddhism, there is this incredible technology. So I have these ongoing groups. I have this website. I run the Living Dying Project. Let, my, let me give myself a plug here. Please do. Uh, Mm -hmm. I, I run the Living Dying Project, which Stephen Levine Ramdas and I started long, long ago, the first organization in America to promote conscious dying. So there's this website, livingdying.org. I have one of the podcast channels on the Be Here Now network called Healing at the Edge. And we have an online workshop with a live interactive component to it. And uh, so in my teaching, and I've been doing a lot of teaching and guiding people and teaching people to guide the dying, I really base it on Tibetan Buddhism, but I talk about it in devotional terms. I, I take the structure of Buddhism and use Judeo-Christian plus Hindu devotional notions. And to me, that is really... Uh, a very powerful amalgam. And on top of that, here, here's another part. that It's more than Buddhism. Uh, all these Buddhist and Hindu practices were put together by and for people who were walking around barefoot, were grounded and centered, loved their mommy and daddy, and didn't have an iPhone. <laughs> right? So, so very little of this, this spiritual literature talks about becoming embodied and getting grounded and getting centered, which, you, which is the somatic equivalent of the Hinayana invocation trust Vipassana stage. So that until you become embodied, it's really very difficult to surrender into the boundless sky of heart or into the tantric devotional kind of thing. And uh, even in working with dying people, very often people are approaching death and they're not even in their body yet, <laughs> right? So, mm -hmm. so it's difficult to fully avail yourself of the spiritual opportunity that the dying process can present if you don't even have a relationship with your body very much. So I've been finding that for a lot of people, even particularly meditators, that it's very useful to get into your body before you do this letting go. One, one guy, one therapist, Buddhist therapist, and I said, you have to become somebody before you can become nobody. Yeah. <laughs> so Ramdas is talking about becoming nobody. 
but he spent a lot of time because becoming somebody. He was a psychology professor. He he spent a lot of time. He was successful in the world. And the people that I've met who have the easiest time on the spiritual path are people who have really become somebody. They're successful in the world. They're not trying to get away from their 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 poverty or their bad relationships or their confused mind. They're 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 pretty together, integrated in a personality sense and a success in the mm. world kind of way. Yeah. So then they can start letting go of all that stuff. And so there's becoming nobody. Uh, if you haven't if you haven't done the becoming somebody, it's very very complicated. And so mm. you're tr- so in one way we could say the spiritual path is moving from identification with our separate self to identification with true nature. And as we're letting go of identification with separate self, if we're really neurotic, it's going to get very messy really early on. Yeah, very messy. <laughs> Jeez. Um, <laughs> you sound like you're speaking from experience. Yes. Yes, <laughs> my brother. Um, that, actually, that that is uh, a wonderful thing that you just um, wrapped. It, it is... Uh, very important this thing about you do have to become somebody before uh that somebody can be relinquished exactly yeah so very good so before before you mentioned the 16th karmapa yeah yeah and i met him on this some of his first visits to america and at one point we were in a small shine room on the san francisco peninsula and he was going to do an empowerment and the deal was that to have the empowerment, you had to take refuge first. So he said, all the people who have taken refuge get over on this side of the room and all the people that haven't get on the other side. And I had taken refuge with Kala Rinpoche already. So I got over on the side where you'd taken refuge. And he was on the other side taking a snip of hair and doing something with each person. And I was right on the aisle, but I was clearly on the I've taken refuge side. And he took one look at me and he started laughing. And he, he cut off some hair and gave me refuge again. And my feeling was that he recognized me. And he was la- laughing like, oh, what a weird incarnation for you this time. You know, that, th- that I had been like a, a, somebody that he had known, like a Tibetan or something or another. So that, and in fact, uh, I, I had the great privilege to walk around Mount Kailash with Roshi Jones. Halifax, and we also walked around uh, Lake Manasarovar as, as part of that, that pilgrimage. And there's one point there in Tibet on the side of that lake where the, the story goes that that's where Hanuman did a lot of puja up in this place in Tibet. And uh, so, I mean, it, it, and you could feel, I mean, I thought maybe I'm imagining things, but you could really feel Hanuman there. Mm. So, I mean, it's not really that Tibetan Buddhism and, and Maharaji and Hinduism and Christianity are different things, but that I think the West is now, how can I say this, that we, we, can, we can combine things in, in, a, in a wiser way, that, that uh, time's a wasting. We don't have the option, most of us, to go on really long retreats for six months at a time anymore. We don't go off to India for a year or two like we did when we were young. Mm. So how can we, not that there's a shortcut, there's no shortcut, but there can be avoiding roadblocks and detours. 
Mm. Can we use this, this Buddhist technology to let go of the story, to become nobody, to be with what is, let go of the story, have compassion, and then go into this tantric devotional stage, and from there, open up into the nobody stage of non-duality. Mm. One of the other things uh, that's a very common concept, of course, Buddhist concept, Buddha nature that Mingjur talks about, um, th there were some really great things in here. Um, and basically, he says, the seeds of compassion are present in our very simple wish to avoid pain and discomfort. Love is present in the movement towards happiness and fulfillment. And I think this goes a long way to say a little bit about what we were just talking about and what you were just expressing. But uh, yeah, let's, let's talk about that. Because, I mean, he also says that, um, you know, we, we think we are just bad guys and girls here all the time. Letting, we have a view that we are fundamentally flawed, right? And letting go of that view is not easy at all. Um, it's the message we're not good enough and we never will be. And um, if you, he says, if we don't question this assumption, meditation can easily become a subtle form of aggression. Mm -hmm. uh, speak to that a minute, because I think that's very incisive. Yeah, well, I mean, meditation can just be another technique to fix the place where we're not good enough. Mm. I remember once we were with, sitting in front of Maharaji and Ramdas was having a particularly bad day. He was really upset and he came up to Maharaji and he said, Maharaji, I'm so, I'm so impure. And he had on long sleeves and Maharaji pulled his sleeve and looked up his sleeve and said, I don't see any impurity. <laughs> yeah, I was there in that moment, by the way. So. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, to me, I, I fully get what Mingyu is saying, but for me, uh, having Maharaji love me and being with him and sitting in front of him and feeling inadequate or horny or agitated or whatever. And he, he, he kept loving me completely, no matter what. And then there were some other people in the satsang that I didn't even particularly like. <laughs> <laughs> I won't mention any names, wouldn't you? But he loved them just as he loved, much as he loved me. And I thought, how could he love that idiot, right? Yeah, I know and, it. <laughs> So uh, that that unconditional love is always available, whether you went to India or whether you love Maharaji or whether you love Christ. Uh, and in a way, the deepest, one of the deepest meditation practices is to just sit and be with what is without any judgment, without trying to improve anything just getting real with what it is that we're experiencing moment to moment. We're, we're not trying to concentrate more and, and be more fully with our breath. We're not trying to understand something. We're just being with what is, which in a way is trusting the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, trusting the fact that freedom does exist. The, the Buddha nature is inherent and that, there is this way to it and that there is the Sangha. And one time uh, the Buddha's attendant and nephew 
Ananda came to the Buddha and said, oh Buddha, I've heard somebody said that the Sangha, if their word for the satsang, is fully half of the spiritual path. Mm. And the Buddha said, oh no, Ananda, it is all of the spiritual mm. path. Yeah, yeah. So that what we're talking about is really great, but it's very, very, very difficult to do on your own. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Mayor Baba said, love is contagious. Those who haven't got it, catch it from those who do. Mm. Yeah. So, so somehow being in the satsang, being with you, like I was down in Ohio a couple of weeks ago with my son and and uh, these groups I teach where we get together, it, it's so much easier then to let go of, I'm alone with my suffering. Uh, Gurdjieff said, the first thing we have to do on the spiritual path is let go of our identification with our suffering. Easier said than done. Yeah, right. Right. But I'm I, I just going to second that uh, motion about a satsang sangha community with like-minded people uh, i don't uh, i i mean we got that message of course from the earliest days of being in india around maharaji you've given some uh, yeah i turned to people i didn't even like and i felt this <laughs> explosion in my heart yeah right, right. so that's all real and and we've you know i guess one of the things that we've done since we've come back is we've kept it going We've kept it going in many different ways. You're doing it right now through the center. Yeah. And uh, we're doing it through Love Server Member and the stuff we do with Ram Das. But beyond that, just the way we were together last weekend or two weekends ago, whatever it was, is so nourishing. And I encourage everybody, whatever you can do, that's uh, the basis of, of making any uh, kind of strides that start to help with the detachment from from the suffering of of being self and self cherishing, which is a Buddhist concept. But I love that self cherishing. Um, and by the way, uh, we have through Ramdas.org, which is my other hat, other than this podcast hat. Uh, if you write to info at Ramdas.org and say, "Is there a community?" in my neighborhood, wherever you may be, we have a fellowship and we will, somebody will get in touch with you and help hook it up and, or even it just takes two, right? Christ said, we're two or more gathered in my name. There I am. So you could even start it. And then somebody else will write in from, you know, Columbus and you're in Columbus. Oh, oh I don't know why I thought of Columbus, but uh, <laughs> what's uh, the thing that, what's the thing in the Ramayana where Ram gives Hanuman the boon? that you, you will always be on the physical plane and where, wherever, what is it, two or three people are singing praises to Ram, you will be there. Mm. Yeah, 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 beautiful. Now, you know, there's one thing just before we leave uh, our podcast. There is one thing that I really got from Mingyur's, uh, Mingyur's uh, article. He said, Buddha nature is not a better way to play the same old game. <laughs> He's great. <laughs> I mean, where's he coming up with these kind of idios? They're very Western. He, somebody's working with him there or something. Well, you know, the book he wrote, which I absolutely recommend to everybody, right? Um, in love with the world. Okay, everybody, get that book. That is one of the greater books I've read because not it's engaging because he tells the story of being uh, often away from the monastery as a sadhu 
begging for four and a half years. So, and in between all of that, he's got, you know, these wonderful teaching uh, stories and, and so on. He, he made it all, it's a teaching. And that's how he did it, including almost dying. Um, so Buddha nature is not a better way to play the same old game. It's an entirely different game. The principle of Buddha nature invites us to explore our experience in a new way, not with an eye to correcting what's wrong, but noticing what has always been right. That's a huge shift in the old view, okay? Well, that's what the view is, Rob. That is the view that, that is the view. about half an hour. Uh, right, okay. That is the view. Okay, so shift in perspective to the view. Okay, I got it. Now, I'm, I'm a slow learner, but I'm getting it. Um, but, but how many of us absolutely, no matter what, go to the most pessimistic bullshit or, or to the darkest thoughts and we dwell on, we dwell on all of that because that's a big part I mean, it's like changing, you're kind of, you get into these habitual patterns, right? And, and changing is, is like, you feel uncomfortable. There's a comfort with some of this bullshit that we are living day to day, moment to moment. So uh, I love this little thing. Just make that little shift to the view. That's what we got to call this thing, right? However, shifting to the view is scary because we are comfortable in the prison of our suffering. Yeah, I just said that. Yeah, I, I, I am. I know you did. <laughs> I am seconding the motion, as you said. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th there was a time in Egypt where they were going to create this big hydroelectric dam or somewhere in, mm. in that neighborhood, and it was going to create a lake that was going to drown a lot of large mammals. So they tranquilized, encaged, and transported these. I don't know lions and I don't know what it is, but they moved them a hundred miles to a very similar place that was not going to be under the lake. And they opened up the cages and the animals didn't want to come out. Mm -hmm. And when people get released from prison, mm. some guys would rather stay in prison than go out into the unknown world. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, you guys that are listening um, know that we're going to link up Ramdev with you in terms of the work that he does. And uh, there's some great workshops that he's doing, um, I think, coming up at the end of the year, or the beginning of next. And uh, Ramdev works, of course, with us and doing uh, retreats and so on. And uh, we'll, you'll probably hear about that. Uh, but uh, certainly, if you're interested in doing more work, around transition and and yeah just a little bit just say because i know you never like me to say that you are involved in uh, strictly in working with death that you are involved <laughs> with working with love <laughs> you know i'm really not interested in death i'm interested in awakening in spiritual transformation and very often, until people really know they're going to die, spiritual, in fact, Trungpa Rinpoche said, until you have an intimate relationship with death, your spiritual practice will have the quality of you being a dilettante. So we talked about Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana, but in Tibetan Buddhism, before even the, the, the Hinayana stage, there is motivation. There are the mind-turning truths. One of them is you're going to die, but you don't know when. 
So if you and I really knew that, Raghu, that we don't know we're going to get out of this podcast alive, <laughs> how would that affect the way we were loving each other right now? Uh, Roger Ebert, the film critic, had this really wicked kind of cancer, and he yeah. was typing out some uh, response to some questions about how he was doing for a article, and he was typing, as I'm typing the sentence, I don't know if I'm going to be alive to type the period at the end of the sentence. Hmm. So the fact that we know we're going to die, we know that intellectually, but it's, it's, there's this really deep unconscious assumption that it's not now, it's not in the next hour, it's not today, I'm going to, I got these plans for tonight, and yeah, I mean, obviously you still have to have plans, but if we really, really didn't know how long we were going to die, that shoots you into the view. <laughs> it's a rocket well, to the view. <laughs> and, and the second of the mind-turning truths is that life is precious. This moment is the only moment in which we can awaken. Life is so precious. It's, it's so precious to have a human incarnation mm. where the mind is clear enough, where the heart is open enough, the body's strong enough. You're living in a country where the government's not cracking down on you. You're able to spend some time making, listening to podcasts rather than keeping your children from starving to death. A lot of people in the world don't have this luxury. Mm. Yeah. You're going to die, but you don't know when. Life is precious. There's karma and there's suffering. These are taken as contemplation. So take one of those. Take the contemplation. You're going to die and you don't know when. And let that bounce around the back of your brain pan for the next month or two. And how does that affect your relationships? How does that affect what happens when you wake up in the middle of the night? How does it affect this place where you say, I'm kind of a schlump and I'm this way and that way? I mean, is, is there really time for all this self-flagellating, this victimhood? It's like, hey, let's get on with it. You know, we're, we're going to die. And that's not necessarily a morbid thing. It's really like, you know, Don Juan carried death yeah, as the advisor yeah. over his left shoulder. So yeah. I'm really interested in Tantra and devotion and love and enlightenment and the death is the fact we're going to die and being around dying people is motivating the most beautiful americans i've ever been around with very few exceptions are people who are almost dead americans why do you instead of people in general what well because i'm saying you know i mean i'm not bringing in the karmapa and the dalai lama and maharaji oh. but westerners Westerners, the most beautiful Westerners I've been around are people who are approaching death because they've let go of, I'm fat, I'm thin, I'm rich, I'm poor, I'm ugly, I'm good looking. I mean, not all of them, but some of them are finding the view just through their relationship with their disease. Mm. Mm. So the mm. Living Dying Project, is not a, it's not a depressing thing. It's not morbid. It's not about... It's not about uh, helping you die well. It's about helping you awaken in the context of having a life-threatening illness. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that you're not deciding between living and dying. You're, you're working with healing, healing at the edge. Everybody wants to heal, even right up to a few hours before dying, becoming more whole. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Ramdev, thank you. Thank you, my thank brother. You. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We'll see you all mind rolling on Be Here Now Network and check out Ramdev's podcast, Dale Borglum.
healing at, healing the, edge. at the edge. All right. I got it. <laughs> All right. Thank you, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.